0: Well, praise the Lord, he's good. How many know that he's good this morning? How many know that he has been faithful throughout this past year? And how many know he's going to be faithful this year? He's going to be good to us and he's going to be faithful because he's always good and he's always faithful. And that's what brings joy to us. Well, let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 19. You know, when we think about the past year, there are certain people and certain places and certain experiences that. Stand out as memorable, some in really good ways and some in really bad ways. There are some experiences that we had over the past years that were unpleasant, challenging situations, trials that we faced, difficulties that created tension, and maybe now they're gone and we're glad they're gone, and we're glad 2013 is almost in the books because as many of you raised your hands, it wasn't that great a year. And there are other times that we look at that were wonderful and we're full of joy and we are so glad 2013 happened because it brought us such delight. And we remember those and we'll always remember what happened at that certain date, that certain time, and, and how that brought us great joy and satisfaction and gladness. In any year, there are those types of things. And in any year, there are decisions that we make that, in retrospect, we regret making. We look back and we say, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't decided that, whether it was a financial decision or a physical decision or some kind of relational decision or whatever the case may be, that we look back and we say, you know, at the time, I didn't do the right thing. I, I know, given the options and given the fact that I had an opportunity to ask the Lord for help and kind of seek wisdom from Him, that I didn't do that and I and I made a decision that I shouldn't have and I was maybe driven by, by desires or by fear or what I thought was going to happen and what seemed rational at the time. And we look back at those and we regret making those decisions. Maybe we're still dealing with the ramifications of some of them. Maybe we're still wrestling with that. You know, regret's a really powerful emotion. And regret is almost completely driven by emotion. Robots don't ever feel regret because they don't have the capacity to say, I'm sad that that decision was made. They're programmed to make decisions. They execute decisions without any feeling, and that's what happens. But we, as humans, are full of emotion. So when we get into a situation where we made a bad decision or where something changed for the worse or when we didn't experience what we thought we were going to experience or we experienced what we didn't want to experience, you with me still? I didn't confuse you yet, right? When we go through that, we look back and we feel sorrow. And we wish we could change what had happened. I I know there are many things. You look back in the past year where you say, I wish I had changed what had happened. Or I wish I had made a different decision. That's why we get to the start of the year and we start talking about I don't know if anybody does this anymore. We start talking, New Year's resolutions. This is the year I lose those 30 pounds. I keep saying that to myself. This is the year I get in shape. This is the year I get my finances in order. This is the year that I travel. This is the year I spend more time with my kids. Whatever the case may be, that we say, I wish I will do that in the coming year. But we look back at regret in the last year and say, I wish I had done it then. See, regret always centers around loss. In fact, by definition, it's feeling sorrow because of a sense of loss. Now, there are numerous examples of this all throughout Scripture of people that felt that sorrow. David, after he sinned with Bathsheba and he was confronted about it, immediately felt sorrow that he had squandered his uh, authority and squandered his reputation and squandered his relationship with the Lord. Peter, after he denied Jesus, went away crying and sad and didn't get reconciliation until he was on the beach in John 21 and still felt some kind of squirreliness that it wasn't quite right. Even uh, Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, it says that he went off and threw away the money that he had gotten and went off in sorrow and hung himself because he was sad at what he had done. It's interesting that in every one of those situations that it was prompted by conviction. It was prompted by a feeling that I've done the wrong thing, I've sinned against God, and I'm sorry and full of regret because I should have made it right. But there's one example in Scripture, and I think it's probably the most prominent example of regret, where it's just the opposite, where there's no sorrow, and it's right here in Genesis chapter 19, where we see this unnamed woman. And this unnamed woman is the prime example of misguided regret. And the spiritual decisions that surround this and the the spiritual principles that, that Uh, we learn from her decision, are so instructive to us and so important for us to get that Jesus even referred to them thousands of years later as he was talking to his disciples in a passage we'll look at in just a minute. But here in this historical account, Genesis chapter 19, we see one of the more tragic events in the Bible where Sodom and Gomorrah, these wicked cities that were down in the Dead Sea region at the southern end of the Dead Sea, Sodom and Gomorrah, were destroyed by God. The reason they were destroyed by God is they were so full of sin, so unashamed in their sin, so open in their sin, so blatant in their rebellion against God, and the sin was so utterly rampant that the Lord takes the unusual step of destroying it completely. Now, before He does that, because God is gracious, how many know God's gracious this morning and are glad for it? How many are glad that God forgives sin? And God doesn't just say, you're done, you sin once, it's over. Because God's gracious, He sends warnings. And He sends people to give them the truth. And He sends, uh, he sends a, a preparation for them that He's not going to destroy them before they have a chance to repent. And they ignore the warning. God is even gracious enough that when He says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, unless I can find 50 people, and in the inscrutable understanding of Scripture, he allows Abraham to negotiate him down. And finally, they're at a very small number, and Abraham says, if I can find that number, will you delay your destroying it? And God says, yes. And Abraham can't even find five people that are righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Imagine such a place. And then Abraham's nephew, Lot, goes in, and he's the one who's supposed to be the voice of reason and somebody that stands for righteousness. But his his conviction was weak and he didn't really believe it. In fact, he was drawn to the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he gets there, the sin gets so ingrained and the culture gets so ingrained in him that he even compromises. So the judgment's coming. And there's a lot for us to learn. Look at the text now. The angels come. God sends two angels to come and pull Lot and his wife and his children out before the fire and brimstone comes down. But Lot's reaction to this is not strong by any means. Pick it up, chapter 19 and verse 14. Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters. And he said, up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But his sons-in-law basically thought he was joking. They considered him to be jesting. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wives and your daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, and they brought him out and put him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. Notice he's leveraging God's grace. And you've magnified your loving kindness, which you've shown me by saving your life. Here's the objection. But I can't escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it's small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town which you've spoken of. Hurry and escape there. For I'll not do anything, excuse me, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now, these two angels are sent by the Lord in his grace to pull Lot out of the city. But as soon as they arrive, the people of the town come and surround Lot's house because finally there are new people in town that they haven't corrupted yet. And they're so evil in their thinking that they say, give us these men that have come into town. Who are they? They're strangers. We want to meet them. We want to be with them. And Lot's resistance is very weak. And it's so weak that he says, no, these are my guests. They're under my roof. But I tell you what, I'll negotiate with you. Let me send out my two daughters. You can do whatever you want to them. But but don't take these men because they're my guests. Now, the men continue to persist. Uh, Lot's wife has to pull them into the house. They slam the door. and The men start to push against the door and try to break the door down. And the angels finally say, enough already. And they strike everybody with blindness uh, that's outside the door. And eventually they get tired and go home. The angels say to Lot, it's time to get out of here. As if he wouldn't have known. Time to get out of here. Time to flee. This is not a time to think about it. We've come here to deliver you. The outcry of the people against the Lord is great, Lot. You are corrupted, but God still cares and God's still gracious and God still wants to get you out. Now get out. You would think what happens would be persuasive enough for Lot, but but he still has a heart that's divided. His heart is not keen for the Lord. He doesn't love the Lord at this point, and it shows in his actions. And there are really three actions here, if you start at verse sixteen, that, that he shows. First, he hesitates. Well, I don't I don't I don't want to leave yet. I don't want to move away from the city, even though it's clearly dangerous to spiritual health. Even though God has said this has compromised you, you're not growing, your witness is weak, you have no credibility in town, you need to get out of here. But the text says those three words, he hesitated. Then we see in verse 16 that he resists as they say, look, it's time to get out. And they're like, well, we don't know, we really, this is our home. And they grab them by the arm and physically start to drag them out of the city and, and Lot is resisting and his family's resisting because they're so attached to it. So the angels actually have to have to pull them out. God did it because he's compassionate. God didn't have to do it. He could have said, fine, you want to live here? This place is going to be destroyed. I warned you. I said, angels, I I told you, you hesitated. They had to grab you resisting. Fine, stay here. But God's love is amazing, isn't it? God's mercy is amazing when we're still attached to the world and we're still saying, well, Lord, I don't want to give them up. It's, it's, it's comfortable to me and I like this and, and this is, this is something I've always done. And God says, you need to get away from it because it's corrupting you. And we're like, well, I don't know. God is still gracious to us. But look at what Lot does next. Look back at verse 18. He negotiates. He's not willing to obey the command to get to the mountains. He doesn't trust the Lord's provision, even though God has clearly delivered them. The implication, I think, here is that he doesn't really want to move that far away. Now, that's an interesting spiritual principle, isn't it? That we tend to spend time with what we value most. When they originally divided the land, Abraham says, Lot, you choose, even though Abraham was older and Abraham was the patriarch and he had a right to choose. He was gracious. He said, Lot, you choose what you want. And it says that Lot purposely pitched his tents toward Sodom. In other words, he started to face the city that he knew was corrupt. And eventually he got closer and closer and closer and closer until he was finally living in town. And this Bible says that he was sitting at the city gate. He was like the greeter. He was like the 10 team for the whole city and anytime somebody came in there was lot greeting everybody and knowing everybody's business and eventually his heart become uh, became very very warm to the city he spent time there his heart was there it became his preoccupation Listen, that happens so easily. It doesn't have to be a corrupt, evil city. It can be anything that becomes our preoccupation where we start to make that. And I'm hesitant to use this word, but it's biblical. It becomes our little mini God. It becomes more important than the Lord. And the list could be long. I'm not even going to start to name it because we know the things that take precedence Over the Lord that divide our heart that start to become more important to us than spending time with the Lord and our reputation and our witness will always suffer because of that. So lot hesitates, then he resists, then he negotiates. It's kind of the trifecta of spiritual compromise. Now, all this is going on and there's one person in the text. We don't even get her name whose desire to stay is stronger than lots and that's his wife. Now notice that the angel is abundantly clear that you need to get far away. To the point that he says, when you're running away, when you're going away as I'm about to destroy it, I don't even want you to look back. Don't don't even take a glance over your shoulder because this is your past life. This is what carries destruction and I want you away from it. But even after all of that, Lot says, look, we would like to stay close. We'd like to go down to Zoar, which you're planning to, to destroy. But, but this is the option that we're throwing out at you now, as if there's some kind of negotiation. We'd like to go to Zoar, which is in the valley, which the angel said, get out of the valley. If you look at the bottom of the Red Sea, and I tried to find a good map and couldn't. Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the bottom of the Red Sea. Sodom and Gomorrah are right here. And Zohar was down here, about 12 miles away. So Lot says, can we go to Zoar? Can we just run down the valley a little bit? We know you're about to rain some destruction from heaven, but, but we would like to stay close. And there's a detail here that I never noticed before in all the times I've studied this text that actually makes what Lot's wife do, uh, did far worse than what I've always seen depicted. Look back at verses 22 and 23. It says they left in the morning, but it took them time to get down to Zoar. And it wasn't until they got there, 12 miles away, think how long it would have taken them to flee as the night was, uh, was breaking and dawn was breaking and they started to run and flee. Think how long it took them to get down there. They get down there, it's into the day, and at that point, look at verse 26, at that point, that's when she looked back. I never noticed that before. I've seen it depicted in the movies where they're leaving Sodom and Gomorrah and they're kind of at the crest of the hill and the city's right there and she looks back. That's not the case in the text. They had gotten all the way down to Zoar. They had had this long journey to get down there. And at that point, when she finally got to the city, it's at that point when she looked back. This was not a snap decision. It wasn't morbid curiosity. It wasn't like, what's going on? I have to look. I have to look. Oh, I don't want to look, but I, but I have. To. It wasn't that. She had time to think about it. As she was walking and trudging and running away from the city where she used to live, the city that she loved, she was thinking, I wonder what's going on and I wonder what's going to happen. And she gets to the next city and she makes a highly rational intentional decision to look back and see what was there. Why? Because she regretted not being there anymore. She still wanted to be there. And the text says that when she did that, that God turned her into a pillar of salt. Now, why a pillar of salt? You ever thought about that? What What a strange judgment from the Lord, right? We don't see anywhere else in Scripture where God turns somebody into a pillar of salt. Why not just strike her dead? Why not say, if you look back, you're going to die? Like Uzzah, if you touch the ark, you die. And yet, here's Lot's wife and children and Lot running away, and she looks back when she gets to Zoar, and she turns into a pillar of salt. Now, when we study the Bible, how many have taken the Bible study methods class? All right, what are the questions we ask? Who, what, where? when why and how right anytime you study the bible you want to ask questions we don't just read it and say she turned into a pillar of salt wow that's really cool i bet that was that was fun to watch okay next verse why why a pillar of salt what's the spiritual significance of that why would god choose that method now the lord's always teaching us right And God obviously includes this detail. This is obviously important. It's obviously intentional. God chose this method not only to punish her, but to teach us. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God's profitable for teaching, right? So what happens in Genesis chapter 19 is absolutely applicable for us in Racine, December what, 29th, 2013. Can you believe that's the date? So what happens here? Applies to you and me. So why a pillar of salt? What would be the properties of a pillar of salt? And what does it mean to us spiritually? Well, let me give you three real quick. First of all, a pillar of salt is dry. A pillar of salt is dry. Like the desert around it, it has no moisture, which is why salt pulls moisture out, right? Which is why when we get that freeze, before it becomes four degrees for the high tomorrow, whatever outlandish thing that it is, and why don't we live in Florida. Whatever it's going to be tomorrow, if you've got uh, ice on your driveway today, what do you want to do? You want to throw down some salt. Because otherwise, you're going to walk out in the morning, and you're going to slip on the ice, and you're going to fall. Salt pulls out moisture. If you eat too many potato chips, something I've never been known to do, but I've heard people that have done this. If you eat too many potato chips, if you eat too much that's salty, what happens, right? You get dehydrated. Like, i got to have some water. Salt pulls out moisture. So a pillar of salt would have been dry. Second, a pillar of salt would have been hardened. The crystals of the salt would all meld together, and that would be intertwined, and that would be why it's represented as a pillar. This wasn't something that blew away from the wind. It wasn't a pillar of sand. Because how long would a pillar of sand last? It was a pillar of salt. It was firm and hardened. And because of that, it then became immovable. We don't know how much Lot's wife weighed. I'm not going to speculate. Let's assume, though, that it was over a 100 pounds. Fair assumption? So, a 100-pound block of salt would be pretty tough to move, right? So, it's dry, it's hardened, and it's immovable. Now, What does that teach us? Why do we care? How does that apply to my life in December of 2013? Well, the point is, this is God's punishment and he's showing us a spiritual principle through it. Because if you use the words dry, hardened and immovable about somebody's spiritual walk, is that a positive or a negative? The last thing I want said about my life in 2014 is that Rhodes was dry spiritually, that Rhodes was hardened spiritually, that that Rhodes was immovable spiritually and not in the good way. Stubborn, stuck, dry, lacking in any life, lacking in any presence of the Holy Spirit, lacking in anything that was good. This is a metaphor now for what God doesn't want us to be. And he says, if you're going to live in regret over your old life and you're going to live in regret over what you are missing ostensibly because you don't get to live as you used to live because now you're redeemed, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to become dry, hardened, and immovable. You're going to become a pillar of salt. Lot's wife looks back with regret and with longing. And God turns her into a pillar of salt. How does Jesus talk about this? Take your Bible for a second and turn over to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. Because what happens with Lot's wife has spiritual implications written all over it, especially when we read this passage where Jesus is talking about the end times. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's talking to them about what's going to come. And I believe as I've studied that. This message is for us as we end one year and start a new one. And I know that's a date on the calendar. There's nothing that will necessarily change as of Wednesday. It's not like life is going to be dramatically different because we write a four at the end of the date instead of a three. But there is something about the start of a new year where we can say to the Lord, Lord, I want to hear a fresh word from you. I want to have a fresh understanding of your provision and your presence in my life. I want to hear something from you. I hope you're asking that. I hope when we have that first prayer meeting on January 8th, that that room is going to be full because we're going to say, Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you want from us. And there are three words this morning that Jesus is telling us that I believe set a tone for this year for us individually and for us as a church. Here are the words. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why thousands of years after this incident in Genesis chapter 19 would Jesus, as he's talking to his disciples about the end times, why in the middle of his discourse about him coming back, would he say in the middle of that, remember Lot's wife, remember what happened with her. Jesus is teaching about the last days. He's teaching about how the world will be. How his disciples, and that includes us, should be prepared for his coming. How our hearts should be right with him. And he uses two parallels here in chapter 17. We're not going to read the text. Where he says this will be the spiritual atmosphere. This is what it will be like when I return. He says there are two times in history that I can compare it to. One will be the days of Noah and one will be the days of Lot. He says, when I come back, when I return, when I call the earth to question, when I say now it's time, the whole earth now has to be accountable for how they've lived and what they have believed. Now is the time. He says, it'll be like two times, the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Now, what do we understand about those things? Well, the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 were a time when the world was spiritually calloused where people were rebellious, where people were self-centered and self-indulgent to the to the point that they had decided, we're not going to listen to God anymore. We're going to try to usurp God. There was the Tower of Babel where they tried to reach God. And the, and the people were so full of sin that when God sends Noah and says, take 120 years and build a boat, even though it's never rained, and as people come up and mock you, tell them about me. And as they're doing that, up until the moment that the door shuts, 120 years, 12 decades, the people are still mocking and scorning and saying, we don't need your God. Same thing is true, what we just read in Genesis chapter 19. The days of Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah so full of sin, the people so resistant. Then you've got the extra Bonus in chapter 19 of sexual deviancy and people are so absorbed with themselves and so intolerant and indifferent to the word of God. It is an awful, awful time. Jesus says, when I return, that's what it'll be like. And honestly, I don't know how we can read those two things and say that our time is different than that. I don't know how we can look around our culture and say we are not living in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. Everything's fine. The world's redeemed. People are walking with God. People are listening to the word of God. We we don't even have churches that are listening to the word of God. We are living in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. And Jesus says, during the time of the days of Noah and the days of Lot, guess what? I'm going to return. And it's still going to be sudden to people. And he uses examples in the text of people that are going about their daily business and walking along and all of a sudden one is going to disappear and one's going to remain. And people be walking through a field and one's going to disappear, one's going to remain. People will be laying in bed, one's going to disappear, one's going to remain. He says, I'll come like a thief in the night. You won't even know I'm coming. And the implication he gives here, are you going to stay or are you going to go? Because the people that I'm going to take, are the ones who truly trust in me. The ones who are loving me. The ones who are set apart to me. And the key distinction that he lays out here, and you can study this text later, chapter 17, he says, the key point of distinction is that my disciples have abandoned their old sinful life. He's saying, make sure now, disciples, remember, this is to his people. This is not to an unsaved group of people. This is not to people that are rebellious and are learning about Jesus for the first time. This is to his disciples. This is to us. He says, make sure that you are not stuck in sin and not stuck in self-importance and not value what the world values but that you are living in holiness and spiritual discipline and that you're distinct from the world. And in case you need a reminder of what that looks like, remember Lot's wife. Because Lot's wife still wanted her old life. Lot's wife still wanted to be part of that. And and as you read this text, and if we had time, we'd read all of it. When you read it later, notice how those words in verse 32 just kind of kind of seem out of place until we see the context and realize why Jesus said them. This was not a decision she made in the heat of the moment. It was not morbid curiosity. It was an intentional action that was full of regret and longing for who she used to be. By the fact that it took time and she walked and thought about it and pondered it and and felt sorrow that she wasn't still there and was thinking, I wonder what's going to happen when I hear that fire coming down. I wonder if I'm going to look back. I really want to look back. I really miss it. I wish I was still there. See, her heart was still attached to what was displeasing the Lord, but she refused to separate it. It wasn't like she went willingly dragged out of the city, pulled, dragging her feet. No, I don't want to go. Please let us stay. Why can't we stay? I mean, you've got to put yourself in the text now. You've got to picture what's going on. They had to physically grab them and yank them. If you knew this building was going to be destroyed in five minutes, I promise you, you wouldn't need to be pulled out. You'd say, where are my kids? Remember we had the little tornado drill? kind of a drill something like that right what was your first reaction where are my kids i got to get my kids we need to get out we need to get to safety and and the tornado wasn't even close by and the children's workers have done a magnificent job getting the children to safety but what's our gut instinct something's going to happen i need to get to safety that's not them the city's going to be destroyed god's fed up he's out of time you have sinned too much. The city doesn't care. People are rebellious and callous. God is going to send fire from heaven. They're like, we don't think we want to go. We, do we have more time? The Lord had been clear to Abraham and Lot, stay away. But they stayed. I tried to picture his wife's social network in Sodom and Gomorrah. Building relationships, having coffee, hanging out with the girls, networking, children playing together. And when it's time to leave, and she knows what's righteous, but she doesn't want to get away from it. And God's saying, I'm going to destroy because it's offensive to me. And she's saying, well, I understand that, but I love it. See, their reticence to abandon and run is revealing because it shows their hearts are still connected, which is why Jesus says, let's conclude chapter 17, book of Luke, which is why Jesus says, if you're really going to be serious about me, then you need to be really preoccupied with me. And if you're going to be really serious about me, then you need to get your heart prepared because soon i am going to come it's sooner than you think and i am going to take my people out and you need to understand that my people are the ones that trust me implicitly and love me completely and have separated themselves from the world i don't know how to explain it but don't forget that there's a passage in scripture where people are going to say lord what about us and jesus says i never knew you, but we declared your name and we raised our hands No, but your heart was far from me. You played the part well, but you were far from me. Don't live in a regret that your past life isn't there anymore because that's what Lot's wife did. And Jesus says to his disciples, he says to us, this is not the time to regret that we can't do that anymore. This is the time to look forward to his return and prepare our hearts. I tried to think, and let me conclude, why Lot's wife regretted. What, what did she regret? And how does it apply to us? Let me give you these two things and we'll pray. The first regret that we sometimes have, the first regret that we're tempted with every day is that we can't continue to take part in our old life. This is so theologically obvious that if we are forgiven and delivered and redeemed, and the bonds of sin are broken, that our old life, as Paul says all throughout Romans, no longer has any control over us. It would be obvious then to say, you can't take part in your old life anymore. But it's still agonizing for us, isn't it? We still want it to be part of our lives until we really get mature in our faith and we no longer have an appetite for sin. But listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. He says there's no way we can be delivered from sin and still continue to be subservient to it. Listen to his words. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Christ, it was put to death, it was nailed to the cross with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. Knowing all that, listen to what he says. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. Now, we know that's true. But the great struggle of our walk is that we somehow still miss it. And we still want to hold on to it even though it clearly damages us and threatens the health and maturity of our walk. So Jesus uses the example here in John 17. He says, listen, when things are collapsing, people will still be trying to grab on to their stuff. Like a person when their house is burning who runs back in because they want to save their pictures. Or a person who is in a, a, a difficult situation where there's a flood and instead of getting to the roof and waiting for the helicopter to come, they're still standing on the front porch, going, "I'm not leaving." That's what we do with our old life. We we are rescued. We're delivered. We're we're freed forever. But we still want to go in and try to hold on to stuff and say, well, "Let me just let me have this." But the water's rising. But I need this. Much of the reason why we do that is because the internal debate of the second regret. And I didn't know how to term this one in my notes, so let me just say it as I felt led to write it. First regret is that we can't continue to take part in our old life. The second regret is that we're being potentially excluded from the party if we take a stand for the Lord and holiness and biblical living. We're being left out And much of this is more perceived than real, but the world sure does a great job of advertising, don't they? That if you live for yourself, that you're going to have a great time. But if you don't live for yourself, you are going to be left out and have no fun. And the pressure has increased with this not-so-subtle attack on biblical values that has even churches and even Christians questioning whether obeying God's word is too narrow and too out of the mainstream. So I thought it was very interesting that this week we've seen this turnaround with A&E and Phil Robertson. I've been very fascinated by that. The family didn't back down, and I don't necessarily agree with every word that he said, but the family didn't back down, and the pressure from Christians and conservatives was so strong that we saw something happen that has not happened in a long time. The network folded. And here's what I've thought about that all week. Look at the power of conviction. When we stand for what we believe, we have the confidence that our conviction based on the word of God is far stronger than conviction that is based on those who oppose God. But we have to be willing, listen church, we have to be willing to stand up and be different. We have to be willing. And we don't do that to be popular, we don't do it to draw attention to ourselves, we don't do it to say, look at me, I'm different. We do it to represent the Lord and to be pleasing to Him and to get our hearts prepared for His return. Someone who has that priority and goal, someone who loves the Lord that way, will not be Lot's wife. Constantly looking back. I wish I wish I could still be there, and I wish I could still take part. And nobody's going to like me if I don't, and I'm not going to have the same friends. And, and listen, Lot's wife was full of regret. Twelve miles she walks thinking about it. Knowing that God said, Don't look back. And she gets to Zoar and she hears the judgment come. And the first thing she does is look back. She wanted her old life. And God said, I've delivered you to a new life. Listen, 2014, the challenges will be great. The pressure will be strong. The world's only going to get more evil. We need to stand for the Lord. We need to prepare our hearts for Him. And we need to say, that old life... It's gone. God's granted me a new life. And it's marked by righteousness. And praise the Lord, I get to serve him. And I'm ready for him to come back. Let's close our eyes. I don't know what challenge the Lord's presenting before you this morning. And I want to encourage you. I don't want to belabor this. You've listened well. Just take 30 seconds. Go before the Lord and bring to Him and confess to Him what you're still holding on to of your old life. Christ, by His death and resurrection, has broken the bonds of sin. He has freed us and delivered us by his grace and his mercy to be saved, delivered, exonerated. Sin is erased. Sin no longer has control over us. Anytime there's a temptation, there is a way of escape. We have been given a new nature marked by righteousness. We have been indwelt by his Holy Spirit. This is what God has done. And those of us who have trusted in Him, and I pray that's every single person in this room this morning, those of us who have trusted in Him are given a new life. He has given us redemption. We have escaped the judgment. In this new year, let's not look back. In this new year, let's not regret that we don't get to take part in our old life because it is full of destruction. God has freed us to serve him now, to walk in holiness, to impact this world in a way we cannot imagine. And I pray our hearts would be stirred this morning and we would be full of joy at the opportunity he's presented us. 2014 is an important year. Let's serve him well. Father, we thank you for the gift you have given us of your redemption. We thank you that you have freed us forever. Lord, it is only by your mercy. It is nothing we've done of our own. As we get older, we know that more and more. And we praise you for the work you've done in our lives. Lord, I pray now you would energize us. You would fill us with your spirit. You would empty us of self that we would be now your laborers, your co-workers, the ones who will take this great word, this great message of the gospel out into the world. You've redeemed us, and we praise you for it. Fill our hearts now, Lord, with the things of God. And may may this be the year where we grow by leaps and bounds, where our faith matures to levels it's never been before, and where our love for you is so strong as we anticipate the return of Christ. Lord, do this work, we pray, in our midst. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.